Sure, we'll get started. Grab your Bible. Uh, we're going to be in 2 Kings chapter 6. And I'll pray while we get started. Lord, thank you for this time where we get to come together. Thank you for uh, the assortment of Bibles that we've brought into this room. God, I'm reminded of our brothers and sisters in China where sometimes there's just one Bible per church. Uh, God, and we have many of us multiple copies, and yet we don't read it enough. Um, But thank you for your word that you've given it to us. Thank you for good translations of your words so that we can understand in our heart language what you're trying to say to us. Thank you for the freedom in our country to come and gather together and do this. Um, I pray that this would not be the only time this week that we open up our Bibles and hear from your word, but that this would just be a jumping off point for the rest of the days that we have this week to be feasting on the bread that is your word that feeds us, um, even as it's been revealed most clearly in Jesus, your son, whom you sent, the true bread from heaven that sustains us with every spiritual need, even as you sustain us with our daily bread physically. Um, So God, please bless this time now that we're reading. And please speak through these words and uh, through my lips, by the power of your Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus, to the glory of the Father, we pray. Amen. Okay, so we're going to be in 2 Kings chapter 6. We're just going to keep on doing what we're doing. We're going to read uh, verse by verse through the book of 2 Kings. Uh, We saw a lot last week. Uh, Are you serious? Dude. Leith is my favorite student. You guys are all competing for second. It's just a trip. Second place. We can't get first now. Man. He brought me a coffee, if you didn't. Okay. Uh, So we are, last week we saw the prophet Elisha. We saw the ministry of the prophet Elisha, all these miracles that he was doing. We got to see some really cool, wasn't that cool? The parallels between Elisha and Jesus. Um, and, and just what that means. We're going to jump off with a continuation of Elisha's ministry. I'm not going to go too deep into a lot of these other miracles, but we can uh, assume the same things that we kind of saw last week, that this is more testifying not to Elisha's greatness necessarily, but more to the God that is working through Elisha in this. Um, today we're going to get into some kind of cool, dramatic uh, exciting stuff. So let's start out. So we're picking up with Elisha, verse 1 of chapter 6. Now the sons of the prophet said to Elisha, see the place where we dwell under your charge is too small for us. Let us go to the Jordan and each of us get there a log and let us make a place for us to dwell there. So you can imagine this is sort of like a school or a seminary for all of these prophets that are working together. So they want to build a bigger place for them to live. And he answered, go. Then one of them said, Be pleased to go with your servants. And he answered, I will go. So he went with them, and when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. But as one was felling a log, his axe head fell into the water, and he cried out, Alas, my master, it was borrowed. So if it was borrowed, if you remember from Levitical law, uh, that's his brother's property, he would um, be obligated by the law of God to make restitution for whatever that tool was lost. Okay, so he's like, Ah, shoot. And, you know, this is... Uh, a long time ago, so they didn't just go to Home Depot. That was precious metal that they had just lost, so this was probably expensive. Uh, Hence why he was borrowing it. So it was borrowed. Then the man of God, that is Elisha, said, Where did it fall? And when he showed him the place, Elisha cut off a stick and threw it in there, 
and made the iron float. And he said, take it up. So he reached out his hand and took it. All that is demonstrating is that God has mastery over the physical elements of the universe, okay? Which makes sense because he made it, right? So Elisha is uh, doing a miracle by the power of God's mastery over creation. Verse 8, once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, by the way, you see where it says once, uh, it's probably a good, uh, it's, it's probably true to say that all of the miracles that we've looked at, even though it's written down chronologically, probably did not happen with that succinct kind of chronology, okay? But the writer of Second Kings was compiling these narratives of Elisha's miracles that he did probably throughout the lifetime of his ministry, and he's lumped them all together to make more of a point about God's miraculous work through Elisha, okay? And it looks a lot more impressive when you put it all together. So that's why it says once, okay? It doesn't seem like it's just boom, boom, boom. Does that make sense? It's very common in the Old Testament that it's not working chronologically, chronologically, which probably bugs us as Americans, but for Hebrews, they were like, that makes sense, that's cool, because they were not nearly as concerned with that sort of A, B, C, D uh, uh, display of a story. So once, when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, at such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God, again, that's Elisha, sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And so the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God had told him. Thus he used to warn, that is thus Elisha used to warn the king of Israel, so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. And the mind of the king of Syria, so remember Syria and Israel are are, uh, enemies at each other, increasing hostility. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? So because the king always seems to know where the Syrians are going to be camped, the king assumes that there's a, a, a rat. He's got a mole somewhere in his property that keeps on going off to Israel and telling the king where their army's going to be. So he's saying, who is it? Who's the one that is for the king of Israel? But one of his servants said, none, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. That's pretty cool. Uh, And again, we see a picture of Jesus, that Jesus somehow has this omniscience, this all-knowing aspect to him, and that is true of God, that God is in the king of Syria's bedroom. So he can tell Elisha, and Elisha can tell the king. And he said, go and see where he is, that I may send and seize him. So it was told him, behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent their horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and they surrounded the city. So the the king of Syria sent an army to capture Elisha so that he would stop ratting out his plans and he could defeat Israel. When the servants of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And he said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more, are more than those who are with them. That would be a good thing to just stop and meditate on. You got stuff going on this week. Stuff is piling up, okay? Maybe a lot of you guys have your first tests or projects due this week, or uh, you're looking at your syllabus, and you're like, oh, man, I'm already four weeks behind, okay? Um, and, it, and it feels like, or maybe there's, there's uh, even more real circumstances that there's um, 
enemies that are opposed against you, that there are family problems or whatever it is, and you're, ten- you're uh, tempted to be overwhelmed like Elisha's servant was, you can just remember this, that Elisha says, don't be afraid because those who are with us are greater than those who are with them. What's he talking about? Those who are with us are greater than, does he mean Israel's got more people than Syria has? No, what does he mean? You ever see where it says, uh, the Lord of hosts in the Old Testament? You see that phrase, the Lord of hosts, over and over again, especially in the Psalms. Um, one, the, the message version of the Bible, Eugene Peterson's translation of the Bible, he calls it the God of the angel armies, which is pretty cool. And I think, is it Chris Tomlin ripped that off and made a song about it? Um, but that's actually from like a trying to be an accurate translation of the Lord of hosts, that God has an army of angels all the time. We forget that. We don't see that, do we? Because all we see is what we see. So a lot of times in your life and you're looking at these circumstances, all you're seeing are your circumstances. You forget that God's there. You forget that he's the Lord of hosts. You imagine a future that is atheist, devoid of God. We're functional atheists a lot of times when we're confronted by difficult circumstances. You know what I mean? I thought you were, yeah, I believe in God. But functionally, it's like you just live in this material world and all there is is what there is. And you're not thinking about God at all. And that's kind of where this servant is. So Elisha prayed, verse 17, and said, Oh, Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. Oh, Lord, please open our eyes that we may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire. All around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike this people with blindness. So there's a cool parallel here. Elisha has opened the eyes of this servant, and he's praying to God to strike the Syrians with blindness. So there's an opening of eyes, a closing of eyes. That's kind of a theme through this narrative. So when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. Anybody go to prayer this morning? Okay, God is going to act in accordance with our prayers. I hope you're praying. If not in the morning, please pray for our ministry. Okay, please pray for your churches. Please pray for this city. So when the Syrians uh, came down, Elisha said to, uh, in verse 19, Elisha said to them, This is not the way and this is not the city. Follow me and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And so he led them to Samaria. The guy that they were seeking because they're blind, he's leading them to Samaria. As soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, now open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria, enemy territory. And as soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I strike them down? Can you imagine the king's like drooling? Okay, it's like this, uh, his en- this enemy army has been delivered to his doorstep. They're surrounded by his own people. And so he's like, Is this it? Do I get to do it? Do I get to strike them down now? He says, Oh, Father, shall I strike them down now? Shall I strike them down? He, and Elisha answered, You shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. Look at this. So he prepared for them a great feast. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away, and they went to their master, and the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. Can you believe that? We can't talk about that at all, but that's, that's awesome, okay? You think about that, that's, that's God's heart towards us. This is how God treats his enemies 
All right, and this is um, even like Paul says it. Don't don't bless your enemies. I mean, don't curse your enemies, but bless them, help them. Okay, when Jesus says, uh, if someone wants to take something from you, give it to them and more. Okay, so this is how we're to respond to our enemies. And then look what happens: the Syrians didn't come again on raids against Israel. I wouldn't either. Twenty-four. After that, so afterwards. Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, mustered his entire army and went up and besieged Samaria. So that was a temporary peace. And so there was a great famine in Samaria. Do you know what a siege is? you know what it means to besiege a city? What does it mean? Somebody describe what it means to besiege a city. <laughs> to surround it. Literally have no more resources. Okay, so um, I don't think they have bombs, but I get, I get what you're saying. Yeah, but they would uh, surround the city, cut off supplies from getting into that city, because cities had these big walls around them, and so they would besiege it, and then you were basically trapped inside the walls of your city. So whatever food you had was all you had at the time that the siege started. And so a lot of times it was just waiting it out until they got desperate and had to try and break out somehow, to get, get more resources. Okay, so Syria is besieging Samaria, the capital city of Israel. And so, verse 25, there was a great famine in Samaria as a result of the siege. As they besieged it, until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and the fourth part of a cab of dove's dung for five shekels of silver. That's a lot of money to eat a donkey head. Okay, and don't worry, dove's dung is not actually bird poop, it's a flower. I looked it up, because I was like, no way are they eating, okay, uh, it's a flower. But, but still, they're eating flowers, yeah, and if they had to, maybe they would eat bird poop. I don't know, they're so hungry. And so, you see the supply and demand, any economics majors in here, accounting, okay, that there's uh, not a whole lot, and so it costs a whole lot to buy this stuff that's not even very good. That's how hungry they are. Now, as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him, saying, Help my lord, O king. And he said, If the Lord will not help you, how shall I help you? You hear a little bitterness in his heart? Where you at, God? Okay? I thought you were our God. We're being besieged. We have no food. So he's like, I don't even know where God's at. So this woman's asking for help. And the king asked her, verse 28, the king asked her, what is your trouble? And she answered, this woman said to me, give your son that we may eat him today and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. And on the next day, I said to her, give your son that we may eat him. But she has hidden her son. How bad this is. You believe that? And when the king heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes. And now he was passing by on the wall, and the people looked, and behold, he had sackcloth beneath on his body. And so he said, May God do so to me, and more also, if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. So the king is brought to a breaking point. Things are so bad, he's already had this resentful bitterness towards God, and it's finally broken out, okay? And the sackcloth means that he was in repentance. He was trying to uh, seek the Lord, and he was like, that's it, forget it. And so instead of trusting in God, he's trying to do the best that he can to fight against God, and so he thinks the best thing I can do is kill Elisha. And so he uh, makes his claim, I'm going to... 
uh, take the, the head of Elisha off of his shoulders. And so in 32, Elisha was sitting in his house, and the elders were sitting with him. And now the king had dispatched a man from his presence. But before the messenger arrived, Elisha said to the elders, Do you see how this murderer has sent to take off my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold the door fast against him. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? And while he was still speaking with them, the messenger came down to him and said, This trouble is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? But Elisha said, Hear the word of the Lord. So he's making a prophecy now. Thus says the Lord, Tomorrow about this time a seah of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. A seah is seven liters. Okay, so... It's kind of a big barrel, and it's sold for a shekel. They were selling a donkey's head for 80 shekels, and now they'll sell a sia of of flour for two shekels. Okay, so he's saying tomorrow our economic state is going to completely flip upside down. And the king says, verse 2, Then the captain on whose hand the king leaned said to the man of God, If the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? But he said, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. So it's a big promise. Okay? Now, this is, this is cool. So I love this. This is like if we're watching a movie and there's this awesome, like, dramatic moment where the prophet has made this, this prophecy and he says, look, tomorrow you're going to have more than you could ever imagine when it comes to food but you're not going to see any of it. So it was a threat against the king. It was a little bit of foreshadowing. Now we get like a cut scene. Okay, and we kind of get like the clowns, all right? So we get these like four goobers that are not important characters at all, but we've cut now to them, and they're lepers. And so remember we talked about lepers, where lepers fit in a society. They were cast out. They were pariahs, okay? And so we get these four lepers. Now there were four men who were lepers at the entrance to the gate, and they said to one another, Why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, let us enter the city, the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. And if we sit here, we die also. So now, come, let us go over to the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. They're like, we're, you know, kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. We might as well go try, you know, talk to the Syrians. So they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. But when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold... There was no one there. For the Lord had made the army of the Syrians fear the sound of chariots and of horses and the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come against us. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses, and their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was and fled for their lives. And when these lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into a tent and ate and drank, and they carried off silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. And then they came back and entered another tent and carried off things from it and went and hid them. Can you imagine the scene? Okay, and we've already seen this. This is a way that God's worked in these armies, that he strikes fear into the hearts of these armies, and, and they're completely convinced that they just need to run away. And so that's what happens. And so these four lepers, the whole time, everybody's in the city thinking that they're doomed. And these four lepers, these lowly people, have gone out and they have stumbled upon this treasure that God has already won for them. That their enemies have fled. 
before them. And so they're going around and they're just stuffing. I mean, can you just picture what that's like? Like, you know, like, um, I'm trying to think. I know there's like a movie where somebody's messing around in a rich guy's mansion and so they're taking all those stuff and putting it on and walking around like a top hat and being, you know, they've got all these gold rings on their fingers and they're stuffed. They've had their fill of drink and they're just storing it up for themselves or going back and forth. And the whole time, their brothers and sisters inside the city of Samaria are eating their babies. So I love verse 9. Then they said to one another, We are not doing right. This day is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. So you see that phrase, good news? Today is a day of good news. We've already seen this before in the books of Samuel. That in the Old Testament, that word good news, okay, which in Greek is translated gospel. Today is a day of gospel, of good news. They see that word gospel, and it's always a, in terms of victory, of military victory. So today is a day of good news. Our God has defeated our enemies. And if we remain silent, that is not right. The same is true for us Christians. If you're here in this room, listen to this. God has already defeated our enemies. And He has already poured out all of the riches and the inheritance of heaven onto us. We have received every spiritual blessing that there is to receive. We are the lowly lepers that are playing around with gold rings on our hands. We have received so much. But if we remain silent, oh, that is not right. Because we have brothers and sisters that are trapped inside a wall still thinking that they're doomed and still trying to satisfy themselves with horrible, evil, foul, meager portions of food. They're dying. Can you hear do you see the irony that they're dying inside these walls when there's nothing to be afraid of? If someone would just tell them that God's already won. That's why we share the gospel. Okay? Now nobody's eating their babies at you and hope. Okay. But they're selling themselves out for donkey heads and dove's dung. And you can say, man, I've got living water for you. I've got this all-satisfying message of victory. We get to partake of all of the food and drink and riches that God pours out on us because of his love in Christ. Let me tell you about this. Come outside of the wall of slavery to fear and death. And come revel in this victory. Isn't that cool? That's where gospel comes from. That's where the phrase evangelism is to share the gospel. And it's got this term of victory involved in it. What these lepers do when they come back to the city is they evangelize. I think that's pretty awesome. So verse 10. So they came and they called to the gatekeepers of the city. And they told them, We came to the camp of the Syrians, and behold, there was no one to be seen or heard there, nothing but the horses tied and the donkeys tied and the tents as they were. Where, O death, is your victory? 
Then the gatekeepers called out, and it was told within the king's household. And the king rose in the night and said to his servants, I will tell you what the Syrians have done to us. They know that we are hungry, therefore they have gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the open country, thinking, when they come out of the city, we shall take them alive and get into the city. So he's skeptical. And one of his servants said, Let some men take five of the remaining horses, seeing that those who are left here will fare like the whole multitude of Israel who have already perished. Let us send and see. That's a lot of people's first response to the gospel. That was my first response to the gospel. Look, I don't know if I can trust this God, but it's, it can't get any worse. Maybe, maybe there's something to this message. I'm going to go check it out. Even if it's just with a little bit of investigation, I'm going to check it out. And then you start tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. And then you're like, oh yeah, this is, this is real. So this is kind of that picture. So they took two horsemen... And the king sent them after the army of the Syrians, saying, Go and see. And so they went after them as far as the Jordan. And behold, all of the lay was littered with garments and equipment that the Syrians had thrown away in their haste. And the messengers returned and told the king. Then the people went out and plundered the camp of the Syrians, so that a seah of fine flour was sold for a shekel. Does that sound familiar? And two seahs of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. But remember, there's one more part to the prophecy. Now the king had appointed the captain on whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gate, and the people trampled him in the gate, so that he died, as the man of God had said when the king came down to him. For when the man of God had said to the king, Two seahs of barley shall be sold for a shekel, and a sea of fine flour for a shekel about this time tomorrow in the gate of Samaria, the captain had answered the man of God, If the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could such a thing be? And he said, You shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. And so it happened to him, for the people trampled him in the gate, and he died. Chapter 8. Now Elisha had said to the woman whose son he had restored to life, Arise and depart with your household and sojourn wherever you can, for the Lord has called for a famine, and it will come upon the land seven years. So the woman arose and did according to the word of the man of God, and she went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years. And at the end of the seven years, so remember this is the woman that built the room on top of her house for Elisha, and then Elisha, her son died, and Elisha raised her back from the dead, raised him back from the dead. You remember this? We saw it last week. Uh, so he gives her a heads up, hey, there's going to be a famine, you better get out of town. So she goes to the Philistines uh, for seven years, and at the end of the seven years, when the woman returned from the land of the Philistines, she went to appeal to the king for her house and her land. So someone else had taken her land, they thought it was abandoned, and so she went back uh, to say, no, this is our land. Now the king was talking with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, Tell me all the great things that Elisha has done. And while he was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life appealed to the king for her house and for her land. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, here is the woman, and here is her, is her son, whom Elisha restored to life. And when the king asked the woman, she told him. So the king appointed an official for her, saying, Restore all that was hers, together with all the produce of the fields, from the day that she left the land until now. Now Elisha came to Damascus, and Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, was sick. And it was told him, The man of God has come here. The king said to Haziel, Take a present with you, and go meet the man of God, and inquire of the Lord through him, saying, Shall I recover from this sickness? So the king Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, is sick. He's lying in bed. And God sends Elisha to go talk to him. Which is kind of strange. 
And then the king who's laying in his bed takes his number two guy, Haziel, and says, hey, go meet Elisha and ask him, what does the Lord say? So isn't it interesting, uh, this king of Syria who all of a sudden is sick, then he's a little bit more believing in Yahweh, the God of Elisha. So he's like, what does, Elisha, or what does Yahweh say, the Lord? What does he say? Go ask Elisha. So, uh, he says, take a present with you, go to meet the man of God, inquire of the Lord through him, saying, shall I recover from this sickness? So Haziel went to meet him and took a present with him, all kinds of goods of Damascus, 40 camel loads. And when he came and stood before him, he said to Elisha, your son Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, has sent me to you, saying, shall I recover from this sickness? And Elisha said to him, go say to him, you shall certainly recover, but the Lord has shown me that he shall certainly die. And he fixed his gaze, so this is Elisha, fixed his gaze, and he stared at Haziel until he was embarrassed, and the man of God wept. And Haziel said, Why does my Lord weep? And he answered, Because I know the evil that you will do to the people of Israel. You will set on fire their fortresses, and you will kill their young men with a sword, and dash in pieces their little ones, and rip open their pregnant women. And Haziel said, What is your servant who is but a dog that he should do this great thing? But Elisha answered, The Lord has shown me that you are to be king over Syria. Then he departed from Elisha and came to his master and said to him, What did Elisha say to you? And he answered, He told me that you would certainly recover. The next day Haziel took the cloth and dipped it in water and spread it over his face till he died. And Haziel became king in his place. And if you remember all the way, we can't look at it, but in First Kings chapter 8, this is exactly what God said would happen. Actually, he told Elijah that he would appoint Haziel to be king over Syria. So this has happened. Um, now, I'm, you know, I read this, I've got a lot of questions. Okay? Why did Elijah, or Elisha tell him to say something when something else was true? I don't know. Why did, uh, was Haziel going to do that before, or did he get the idea from Elisha? I don't know. But what we do know is that God is fulfilling his prophetic purposes that he said in chapter 8 of 1 Kings. Okay? And he's going to use Haziel as a means of carrying out judgment on Israel. Righteously. Because we've seen this entire time uh, that Israel has been slowly losing faithfulness in Yahweh and worshiping false gods. And God will not, we're actually going to see this before too on that, God will not put up with that kind of sin forever. And so he is appointing instruments to use as punishment against Israel. And Haziel was the appointed tool that God was going to use to carry out some of this judgment against Israel. That's going to kind of be a continuing theme. So in the, uh, verse 16, in the fifth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, when Jehoshaphat was king of Judah, so we've shifted, we were talking about Israel, remember um, that, that the kingdom is split into two, so the rest of kings is going to jump back and forth from the northern kingdom to the southern kingdom, Judah and Israel, so now we jump down to Judah. So in the fifth year of Joram, the, king, uh, the son of Ahab, who was the king of Israel, when Jehoshaphat was king of Judah, Joram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, began to reign. And he was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. And he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, as the house of Ahab had done, for the daughter of Ahab was his wife, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. 
This is a common structure throughout the book of Kings, okay? So you just have to get used to this. So remember, this is a historical accountant. So it's working through the chronologies of the kings. And a lot of times when we get to a king, there's just going to be a statement about how faithful or not faithful that king was. And there is a woefully short list of kings that were faithful, especially in the northern kingdom, okay? There's really none, all right? Uh, and in the south, there's only like four that really were faithful, that did all that the Lord required. But we see that Jehoram, or Joram, was definitely not faithful, that he walked in the ways of the kings of the north. Okay, Does anybody remember who Ahab is? Anybody that's been a part of Manna, maybe over the summer, or listen, does anybody know who Ahab is? Remember who Ahab is? Anybody? I have to ask questions or I can't drink my coffee. <laughs> Ahab was uh, a king uh, a few generations, uh, really just one generation back, um, and, and his wife's name was Jezebel. Is that ringing any bells? Okay. <laughs> Jezebel's. It's ringing some Jezebel's. Uh, so Jezebel and Ahab were like this dynamic duo of evil, right? Jezebel was actually not even from Israel. She was uh, from another, she was a foreign country, and she brought with her um, Baal worship, worship of the god Baal. And so she kind of, that, that marriage sort of formalized the worship of Baal in the northern kingdom. And Ahab clearly had no problems. And we saw some, uh, some bad stuff even going down that Jezebel put to death all of the prophets and the priests of Yahweh in the northern kingdom, that she had them killed. Okay. Ahab was constantly working against uh, Elijah, who was the prophet of God. And so we see this battle. Ahab was pretty much Elijah's like number one uh, enemy throughout the time of the prophet Elijah's work. Okay, So Ahab was a really bad king. Jezebel was an even worse queen. And they had a daughter okay, uh, uh, named Ah. I'm going to get it wrong. Let me look it up. Athaliah. Okay, or Athaliah. And Athaliah... Uh, their daughter married the king of Judah. So it maybe that was like, you know, at that time that there sometimes were political marriages, like Solomon married the queen uh, or a daughter of Pharaoh to kind of solidify a relationship between Israel and Egypt. Maybe this was trying to solidify a relationship between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Either way, it's not a good thing, okay? Because what this saw was that all of that evil, idolatrous practice that was really running rampant in the northern kingdom was slowly working its way down into the southern kingdom. And the southern kingdom was still ruled by the descendants of King David. Okay, so King David, the man after God's own heart, the one who eventually, out of his line, would come Jesus Christ himself. This line that was supposed to be used by God's purposes, okay, is getting infected with this idolatrous worship. And so Athaliah comes in and marries Joram. And so it says, Joram walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. That's not a compliment. As the house of Ahab had done, for the daughter of Ahab was his wife. That's verse... 18. But then look at verse 19. Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah for the sake of David his servant, since he promised to give a lamp to him and his sons forever. That's cool. That God had promised David all the way back in 2 Samuel that there will always be a descendant sitting on your throne. Okay? That there will never be a break in that royal line from David. And so even though there's evil working its way into Judah, God is not willing to destroy and cut off the king of Judah. Even though he's a bad dude, God is not going to cut off his line forever like he's doing in the northern kingdom. Out of faithfulness to his covenant, God always keeps his promises. Okay? That's encouraging to us. 
okay? No matter what idolatry seeps its way into our hearts, God has made a covenant with us in Christ. And because of that covenant, He will never cut us off. Okay? So no matter how far we might wander off, if we are truly in Christ, we cannot be cut off for the sake of that covenant. That's good news. However, okay, that doesn't mean that idolatry doesn't have terrible effects. Okay, that doesn't mean that there's not consequences for sin. We're going to see that, okay? And it doesn't mean that that should give us a false assurance, okay? The, the thing is that if you wander that far off, my question is, is that covenant even really there with God in the first place? Are you really in Christ? Okay, so there's a lot in that, but we can see the promise and the nature of covenant. So in his days, verse 20, in his days, Edom revolted from the rule of Judah and set up a king of their own. And then Joram passed over to Zaire with all of his chariots and rose up by night. And he and his chariot commander struck the Edomites who had surrounded him, but his army fled home. So they didn't defeat the Edomites. So Edom revolted from the rule of Judah to this day. Then Libna revolted at the same time. And now the rest of the acts of Joram and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Joram slept with his father and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. And Ahaziah, his son, reigned in his place. In the 12th year of Joram, so this is another, so we've gone, now we're going to focus on Ahaziah. In the 12th year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, Ahaziah, the son of Joram, king of Judah, began to reign. That same, by the way, that same structure, and so in such and such year, this man began to reign. Um, that, that, this kind of structure is common throughout ancient Near Eastern cultures when they have histories, chronicles of their kings. So it's a very good indicator that what we're reading right now is a historical document. And I always want to stress that, okay? So you see this same structure. So even though it sounds kind of boring to us, and, and it can be, you know, when you're reading Kings, you can be like kind of dull. It's like, okay, what's one more king? Okay, but what we're reading is an ancient historical artifact that's very reliable. We saw that last week too, didn't we, with the Mesha steel, the revolt of Mesha, the king of Moab. So now we get to Ahaziah. Ahaziah, verse 26, is going to tell us how old he was and how long he reigned. was 22 years old when he began to reign, and he, re- and he reigned one year. In Jerusalem. So that should be foreshadowing enough. <laughs> oh man. Okay, because uh, who in here is even 22? Okay, a couple of you guys. All right. Uh, so he was that young and he only reigned a year. His mother's name was Athalia. Okay, Athalia was Jezebel's daughter. That's also foreshadowing. She was a granddaughter of Omri, king of Israel. And he, that is Ahaziah, also walked in the way of the house of Ahab and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord as the house of Ahab had done. For he was son-in-law to the house of Ahab. So he went with Joram, the son of Ahab, to make war against Haziel, king of Syria, at Ramoth-Gilead. And the Syrians wounded Joram. And King Joram returned to be healed in Jezreel of the wounds that the Syrians had given him at Ramah. And when he fought against Haziel, king of Syria, and Ahaziah, the son of Joram, king of Judah, went down to see Joram, the son of Ahab, in Jezreel, because he was sick. Then Elisha the prophet called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, Tie up your garments and take this flask of oil in your hand and go to Ramoth-Gilead. And when you arrive, look there for Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, son of Nimshi, and go in and have him rise from among his fellows and lead him to an inner chamber. And then take the flask of oil and pour it on his head and say, Thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Then open the door and flee. Do not linger. So we've got um, uh, Joram, 
and sorry, who's the king? I'm, see, even I'm getting confused. So Ahaziah and Joram. So Ahaziah is the king of the southern kingdom. Joram is the king of the northern kingdom. And they're fighting against Syria. Syria is north of them. Okay. And so the son Ahaziah goes up to meet Joram. They're hanging out in Israel. And they've been battling against the king of Syria. They kind of get hurt. So they're hanging out in Ramoth Gilead. It's a city in the northern kingdom. And Elisha tells this other, he sends a servant. He says, hey, go find this guy Jehu. Jehu is a commander of the army. He says, find Jehu and anoint him king over the northern kingdom of Israel. So that's, that's going to be a problem because there's already a king of the northern kingdom. So Jehu is a departure. It's not one of uh, Joram's sons. Jehu is a different king. He will actually be the fifth dynasty in the northern kingdom. So the southern kingdom has the one Davidic line. The northern kingdom, we're going to get the fifth dynasty. It's going to start with Jehu. Things are about to get real. Okay? This is some, this is some sweet stuff uh, if you're into this. So the young man, the servant of the prophet, went to Ramoth Gilead. And when he came, behold, the commanders of the army were in council. And so he said, I have a word for you, O commander. And Jehu said, to which, uh, to which of us all? And he said, to you, O commander. So Jehu arose and went into the house. And the young man poured the oil on his head, saying to him, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, I anoint you king over the people of Yahweh, over Israel. And you shall strike down the house of Ahab, your master so that I may avenge on Jezebel the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all of the servants of the Lord. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free, in Israel. And I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah. And the dogs shall eat Jezebel in the territory of Jezreel, and none shall bury her." And then he opened the door and fled, which is the Hebrew way of saying he dropped the mic. <laughs> Turn to the left to 1 Kings chapter 21. I want you to see something. Now, some of you guys were with us over the summer. We looked at these texts over the summer, but this was just one more example of how bad Ahab and Jezebel were. Ahab was a whiny little baby, and he was in his vacation home in a city called Jezreel, and he looked out, and there was this guy, Naboth, who had a really sweet vineyard. And, Je- and Ahab was like, I want that vineyard. And so he went to Naboth, and he said, hey, can I buy this from you? I'll give you a new land, or I'll pay for it. And Naboth said, we're actually uh, not allowed to do that, King Ahab. God said that if your land was given to your family, it's supposed to stay in your family. And so Ahab went home and cried like a little wuss. And Jezebel came in, and she said, aren't you the king of Israel? And so she left. She paid off some guys, and they killed Naboth and all of his family. And then she came and said, you can have it now. And so he went and bought it. And that really, really made God mad. Okay? Uh, So, if you see in chapter 21 of 1 Kings, in verse 19, Elijah comes to Ahab, and he says... And you shall say, this is what Elijah is going to say to Ahab. Thus says the Lord, have you killed and also taken possession? Thus says the Lord, and the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick your own blood. So it's again another prophecy. And skip down to verse 23. And of Jezebel, the Lord also said, the dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. 
So Elijah comes and he shares that with uh, Ahab. And Ahab actually remarkably repents. He realizes, oh man, that's not, that's not right. That's not good. And so he repents. And then look at this. This is a great, we talked about this. This is actually really good news for us in verse 29. Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days I will bring the disaster upon the house. So that's kind of cool. Okay, we see that God responds in uh, forgiveness to repentance, but also, again, sin has consequences. And so this whole time, there's just been this cloud of this really bad prophecy hanging over the house of Ahab. Jezebel is going to be eaten by dogs. Ahab dies, but then his sons are going to also be killed. Okay, and there's this prophecy that it's all going to go down in Jezreel in the same place where Naboth's vineyard was. That has been hanging over this house for a long time, and now... Uh, Elisha has come to Jehu, this commander, and said, all right, God has appointed you to carry out all of these things that he said he was going to do. And so he anoints him, he leaves, and then in verse 11, we're back in chapter 9 of 2 Kings, in verse 11, when Jehu came out to the servants of his master, they said to him, is all well? Why did this mad fellow come to you? That is Elisha. And Jehu said to them, you know the fellow and his talk. And they said, that is not true. Tell us now. And so Jehu said, Thus and so he spoke to me, saying, Thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Then in haste every man of them took his garments, and they put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. And this is actually kind of interesting to me, because if you remember the triumphal entry of Jesus... And they're taking off their cloaks and they're laying the palm leaves down in front of Jesus. This is, that's what they're saying. Jesus is king. He's been anointed. That's what Messiah means, the anointed one, the Christ, okay? So Jehu is king. So thus Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, conspired against Joram. Now Joram, with all Israel, had been on guard at Ramoth Gilead against Haziel, king of Syria. But King Joram had turned to be healed in Jezreel of the wounds that the Syrians had given him when he fought with Haziel, king of Syria. So Jehu said, if this is your decision, he's talking to the other commanders that have made him king. If this is your decision, then let no one slip out of the city to go and tell news in Jezreel. He's got secrecy. He's got surprise on his side. So then Jehu mounted his chariots and went to Jezreel. For Joram lay there, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, had come down to visit Joram. So both of the kings of the northern and the southern kingdom are in this one place together, and they don't know what Jehu's up to. Now the watchman was standing on the tower in Jezreel. And when he saw the company of Jehu, as he came and said, I see a company. And Joram said, Take a horseman and send to meet them. And let him say, Is it peace? So a man on horseback went to meet him and said, Thus says the king, Is it peace? And Jehu said, What do you have to do with peace? Turn around and ride behind me. So the watchman reported again, saying, The messenger reached them, but it has not come back, or he's not coming back. And so then they sent out a second horseman who came to them and said, Thus says the king, Is it peace? And Jehu answered, What do you have to do with peace? Turn around and ride behind me. And again the watchman reported, and he reached them, but he is not coming back. And the driving is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshi, for he drives furiously. So Joram said, Make ready. And they made ready his chariot, and then Joram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, set out, each in his chariot, and they went to meet Jehu, and met him at the property of Naboth. Really, this would make an epic movie. I'm just saying. 
And we know all of the four, like we're seeing all of this, and we're like, oh, man. Okay. So they met him at the property of Naboth, the Jezreelite. And when Joram saw Jehu, he said, is it peace, Jehu? And he answered, what peace can there be so long as the whorings and the sorceries of your mother Jezebel are so many? That's a mama joke. Then Joram reigned about and fled, saying to Ahaziah, Treachery, O Ahaziah. And Jehu drew his bow with his full strength and shot Joram between the shoulders so that the arrow pierced his heart, and he sank in his chariot. And Jehu said to Bidkar, his aide, Take him up and throw him on the plot of ground belonging to Naboth, the Jezreelite. For remember when you and I rode side by side behind Ahab, his father, how the Lord made this pronouncement against him. As surely as I saw yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, declares the Lord, I will repay you on this plot of ground. Now therefore take him up and throw him on the plot of ground in accordance with the word of the Lord. When Ahaziah the king of Judah saw this, he fled in the direction of Beth Hagan, and Jehu pursued him and said, Shoot him also. And they shot him in the chariot at the ascent of Gur, which is by Iblim. And he fled to Megiddo and died there. And his servants carried him in a chariot to Jerusalem and buried him in his tomb with his fathers in the city of David. In the eleventh year of Joram, the son of Ahab, Ahaziah began to reign over Judah. And when Jehu came to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it, and she painted her eyes and adorned her head and looked out of the window. She's, uh, she knows that it's coming. She knows that her end is in store for her. And so this is her last kind of act. This is, this is how she wants to go down. And so she paints her face. She gets herself looking all pretty. Okay? And she sits on the window to wait for it. And as Jehu entered the gate, she said, Is it peace, you Zimri, murderer of your masters, of your master? In 1 Kings 16, Zimri was a, a king that enacted a coup d'etat over the current king of Israel. His reign lasted seven days uh, before he was, he was overthrown. But she's accusing Jehu of being the same thing, of just being like a no-good revolutionary trying to seize power. So she's, she's slandering him. You Zimri, murderer of your master. And he lifted up his face to the window and said, Who is on my side? Who? And then two or three eunuchs looked out at him, so that's palace servants, and he said, throw her down. And so they threw her down out of the window, makeup and everything. And some of her blood spattered on the wall and on the horses, and they trampled on her. And then Jehu went in and ate and drank, and he said, see now to this cursed woman and bury her, for she is a king's daughter. But when they went to bury her, they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hand. One commentator said that uh, not even dogs wanted to eat the, the head that came up with these terrible atrocities against the Lord, nor the hands and feet that carried them out. That she was so cursed, she was so evil that not even dogs would eat those parts of her body. That's probably taking it a little too much, but uh, the point remains. Okay. Verse 36, when they came back and told him, he said, This is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Elijah the Tishbite. 
In the territory of Jezreel the dogs shall eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the corpse of Jezebel shall be as dung on the face of the field in the territory of Jezreel, so that no one can say, this is Jezebel. But it keeps going. Now Ahab, so that's the king that he just, uh, or sorry, the, the grandfather of the king, that he, or the father of the king that he just killed. Okay? Ahab had 70 sons in Samaria. So even though uh, Joram had been killed, there were 70 other eligible kings still around. Okay? Uh, he must have had many, many wives to have had 70 sons. Uh, or maybe it includes sons and grandsons. Either way, these are all legitimate heirs to the throne. So Jehu wrote letters and sent them to Samaria, to the rulers of the city, to the elders, and to the guardians of the sons of Ahab, saying, Now then, as soon as this letter comes to you, seeing that your master's sons are with you, so that is these eligible kings, uh, seeing that they are with you, uh, and there are with you chariots and horses, fortified cities also, and weapons. Select the best and fittest of your master's sons and set him on his father's throne and fight for your master's house. That's pretty B.A., I think. Okay? You got kings, put them up. You got chariots, let's go and let's see. Okay? Jehu is confident. I think he's confident because he's been anointed by God himself to be this king. So he says, bring it. All right? And so he asked them to set up in verse 4, But they were exceedingly afraid and said, Behold, the two kings could not stand before him. How then can we stand? So he who was over the palace and he who was over the city, together with the elders and the guardians, sent to Jehu, saying, We are your servants, and we will do all that you tell us. We will not make anyone king. Do whatever is good in your eyes. Then he wrote to them a second letter, saying, If you are on my side, and if you are ready to obey me, take the heads of your master's sons and come to me at Jezreel tomorrow at this time. And now the king's sons, seventy persons, were with the great men of the city who were bringing them up. And as soon as the letter came to them, they took the king's sons and slaughtered them, seventy persons, and put their heads in baskets and sent them to them at Jezreel. When the messenger came and told him they have brought the heads of the king's sons, he said, Lay them in two heaps at the entrance of the gates until morning. And then in the morning when he went out, he stood and said to all of the people, You are innocent. It was I who conspired against my master and killed him, but who struck down all of these? Know then that there shall fall to the earth nothing of the word of the Lord which the Lord spoke concerning the house of Ahab, For the Lord has done what he said by his servant Elijah. So Jehu struck down all who remained of the house of Ahab and Jezreel, all of his great men and his close friends and his priests, until he left none remaining. And then he set out and he went to Samaria. It keeps going. And on the way, when he was at Beth Ikhed from the shepherds, Jehu met the relatives of Ahaziah, king of Judah. And he said, Who are you? And they answered, We are the relatives of Ahaziah, and we came down to visit the royal princes and the sons of the queen mother. So they don't know that Ahab and Jezebel are dead yet. These are uh, servants from King Ahaziah, or uh, relatives of Ahaziah in Judah. And clearly there's a tie between the northern kingdom and southern kingdom because their families have gotten kind of intermarried. And so Jehu said, Take them alive. And they took them alive and slaughtered them at the pit of Bethachhed, 42 persons, and he spared none of them. And when he departed from there, he met Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, coming to meet him. 
So Jehonadab uh, is Rechab. The Rechabites are not Israelites. These are Gentiles, okay? So the, this son of Rechab came to meet him, and he greeted him and said to him, Is your heart true to my heart as mine is true to yours? And Jehonadab answered, It is Jehu. Um, and Jehu said, If it is, then give me your hand. And so he gave him his hand, and Jehu took him up with him into the chariot. And he said, Come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. So all of this, you see, he's been carrying out. Not one word of the Lord is going to fall to the ground that he said would happen. This is all God's wrath for the sins of Ahab, the sins of Jezebel, everything that is coming on their own heads for what they have done. And so he says, even more, come and see the zeal that I have for the Lord. I'm not finished yet. So he had him ride in his chariot, and when he came to Samaria, he struck down all that remained to Ahab in Samaria, till he had wiped them out according to the word of the Lord that he spoke to Elijah. Then Jehu assembled all of the people, and he said to them, Ahab served Baal a little, but Jehu will serve him much. And if you've been paying attention throughout this book, and you would see that, you would be like, yeah, I'm not surprised. Okay, because all of these kings are just so quick to abandon the Lord, but actually there's something else going on. So he says, Ahab served Baal a little, after he just said, see my zeal for Yahweh, I'm going to serve Baal a lot, he tells everybody. Now, therefore, call to me all of the prophets of Baal, all of his worshipers, and all of his priests. Let none be missing, for I have a great sacrifice to offer to Baal. So he calls like a birthday parade, a holiday parade. And whoever is missing shall not live. But Jehu did it with cunning in order to destroy the worshipers of Baal. And Jehu ordered, Sanctify a solemn assembly for Baal. So they proclaimed it. And Jehu sent throughout all of Israel, and all the worshipers of Baal came, so there was not a man left who did not come. And they entered the house of Baal, and the house of Baal was filled from one end to the other. So he said to them, who was in charge of the wardrobe, Bring out the vestments for all of the worshipers of Baal. So he brought out the vestments for them. And then Jehu went into the house of Baal with Jehonadab, the son of Rechab. And he said to the worshipers of Baal, Search and see that there is no servant of the Lord here among you, but only the worshipers of Baal. Then they went in to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings. Now Jehu had stationed 80 men outside and said, The men who allows any of those whom I give into your hands to escape shall forfeit his life. So as soon as he had made an end of offering the burnt offerings, Jehu said to the guard and to the officers, Go in and strike them down, let not a man escape. So then when they put them to the sword, the guard and the officers cast them out, and they went into the inner room of the house of Baal, and they brought out the pillar that was in the house of Baal, so that's the object of worship, and they burned it, and they demolished the pillar of Baal, and they demolished the house of Baal, and made it a latrine to this day. Thus Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel. But Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, the sons of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin, that is, the golden calves that were in Bethel and in Dan. And the Lord said to Jehu, Because you have done well in carrying out what is right in my eyes, and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel." But Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all of his heart. He did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin. Also, uh, just to maybe comfort some of you, the book of Hosea, chapter 1, verse 4, also says that Jehu, uh, Jehu's line was cut off later because of the blood that he spilled in Jezreel. So there's presumably he had a little bit too much zeal, okay, and it wasn't zeal for the Lord as much as it was a desire to kill 
and a bloodlust, okay? So he's, he's held accountable to that eventually, but still we see the working out of God's wrath, which is a terrible thing. It is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We'll end with this in 32. In those days the Lord began to cut off parts of Israel. As their idolatry continues, God is carrying out this wrath against them. Haziel defeated them throughout the territory of Israel, from the Jordan eastward, all the land of Gilead, the Gadites, and the Reubenites, and the Manassites from Arior, which is by the valley of the Arnon, that is Gilead and Bashan. And now the rest of the acts of Jehu and all that he did, all his might, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Jehu slept with his fathers, and they buried him in Samaria. And Jehoahaz, his son, reigned in his place. And the time that Jehu reigned over Israel in Samaria was 28 years. Real quick, okay? And first of all, this is, this is part of why we do this, right? How, how many of you, this is your first time ever reading these verses before? Okay, a few of you, right? That's why we're doing this. Did you know this stuff was in here? Can you believe that? Okay, what do we do with this? How do we as Christians read this? Because a lot of people read this and get angry. I actually say that this is laying the groundwork for some kind of fanatical uh, religious extremism, that they're cutting off everybody else. What do we do with this? As soon as we get a good answer, we're, we can leave. So. Actually, I can't keep you here, but what do we think? It gives us a picture of the fallibility of human kings, the sinfulness of human kings, that okay. everything, the center of all the problems in Israel and Judah is because of their sin. Yeah. So we understand that as this is not unfair for God to pour out these things, and actually yeah. we see a lot of signs of his mercy in sustaining the kings, right. and it helps us to look forward to you know, the one sinless king who's yeah. going to you know, bring peace yeah. to the entire world. Great, that's great. Yeah. Uh, kings are representative of the people. So if the king, if, if the head is evil, the rest of the body is evil. And, and so that's kind of how it works. And also I think we just see God takes sin seriously. Okay? This is a wholesale destruction for the results of sin. Um, but actually next week we're going to see that even though, again, those covenant promises stand. So next week we're going to switch back to Judah. And we're going to see that even though there's this sin and God's wrath that is being carried out, because of the promises that he... Remember where he says, the word of the Lord will never fall to the ground? Okay, that word of condemnation stands. If you are under the law, apart from an advocate, that word of condemnation stands, and that word will not fail. You cannot escape. But also the words of God's promises cannot fall to the ground. So if God promises to sustain you, like he did promise to the house of David, like he promises to all of us who are in the house of David, because we are king is not evil... Okay? We have these promises that stand. They will also not fall to the ground. So there's a lot of hope in that. Also, don't be like those uh, lepers and keep the good news to yourself. Amen. 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 See you guys.